Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Cloud Architect podcast, a podcast about cloud technology and the people using it. This podcast is brought to you by Kemp Technologies. We chose Kemp as a sponsor based on their amazing product line for the cloud, which includes the Kemp Loadmaster appliance in the Microsoft Azure Marketplace, as well as Kemp 360 Family. For more information, go to kemptechnologies.com. Welcome, everyone. Nicholas Blank here with my co-host, Warren Dutoy. Hello, everyone. For more information on this podcast, as well as other shows, please browse to http colon forward slash forward slash thearchitects.cloud. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. In today's podcast, we're going to be talking to Chris Goosen, and it's a special introduction as Chris will be joining us as a co-host in the future. Welcome, Chris, and great to have you on the show. Hey, everyone. How are you guys going? Well, we've known each other for a while, and I want to welcome you to the show and ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, Nick. Thanks. That's that's right. Actually, I think we've we've it's probably gone just over fifteen years. We've we've known each other, so uh, you know that uh, that's a fair a fair innings, as they say. Yes, a fair. Uh, thanks time. for having me. Half <laughs> my life. <laughs> so yeah, so uh, let's see a little bit about me. So um, I uh, work for a global Microsoft partner called Insight. I'm currently based over here in the United States. Uh, I live in. Uh, the great state of Texas, um, but I tend to travel around a lot and uh, kind of spend a lot of time um, working with with customers, um, predominantly uh, focusing on Microsoft 365 or Office 365 migrations and you know the readiness and enablement of those types of projects. So, is your primary workload, since you and I know each other mainly through Exchange, is your primary workload Exchange or is it other things in Office 365? You know, I think um, uh, as a history or as a background, obviously my, my background is exchange and messaging and I've spent uh, a large part of my career doing those types of, uh, or that type of work, those types of migrations. But as, you know, as time has progressed in, in recent years, as we've seen cloud adoption become, uh, you know, a lot more commonplace and, and um, organizations are sort of taking on that journey to the cloud, that's also kind of changed my role a little bit, right? And and as I still think of myself as a messaging guy, um, but it's no longer sort of, you know, tugging on the wrenches on, on the exchange server side. Um, it's more lo- looking at enablement and, and how do we actually get to um, that end state or that, you know, that cloud state for, for organizations. Okay. Okay. So one of the things that makes you so special in terms of what you do is that you you don't do anything on a small scale, do you? <laughs> well, I, I guess um, I like being called special, so that's that's pretty cool. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I I tend to I work with um, or the team I work in, we focus predominantly on you know our, our larger scale customers. So um, you know it's it's pretty common for me. Most of my my clients and the projects I do, uh, those customers are you know well over a hundred thousand seats, um, and it brings with it I guess some some different challenges, if you will. Yeah, so that's one of the things we'd love to unpack is. The, the kind of challenges that you get at a migration at scale or even operating at scale. I think most of the folks who listen to the, the show would be very comfortable in an environment of a few hundred or a few thousand users. But when you get to 100,000 users, things get quite special fairly quickly 
particularly when we look at things like how much mail do 100,000 people send and how much mail do you store? Well, you don't care about that anymore because that's all abstracted in the service. But one of the things that you still battle with, surely, is that you can't argue with physics. You can only move so much data at a particular point in time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think the, the, the physics argument is a really good one. I actually um, I had a customer say to me the other day, we've reached a physics problem here, you know, and, and, and that's that's the reality of, of some of the things we do. Um, you're right in that, you know, uh, scale is, is a big thing. The number of messages, the number of just the sheer volume of data can be pretty overwhelming, right? If you think about uh, a lot of large organizations and their infrastructures, those infrastructures have grown kind of organically over time, right? You've had right. people come and go and leave the organization. Um, and depending on, on the vertical and, and what sort of business these guys do, they may have a ton of archive data, for example, or just things that have been sitting around for forever in a day. Um, no one's either had the mandate to clean it up or no one's actually had, you know, the guts to clean it up. Um, and now comes the cloud and, and, and those shifts. And you really want to be able to take, you know, good sound, um, a clean environment and shift that up. Right. I think there's oftentimes there's this this misconception that oh that's okay we're going to the cloud everything's going to be good but you can't take garbage shove it into the cloud and and have this magical solution it, it doesn't work that way there's there's still cleanup processes there's still um, planning and all, all sorts of things that need to happen and those types of things often take uh, a lot longer in large organizations so Chris tell us about you mentioned garbage in, garbage out, but tell us at scale when you talk about planning and you talk about, particularly in a multi-forest scenario, because I, often I find that with, with user count increasing, complexity increases, politics increases, and you've got many source forests sometimes to move from, and you're trying to shoehorn everything into a single tenant and hope it's going to work. Yeah, look, absolutely. And I think, I think all of those factors are, are um, I guess, what become a little more difficult or kind of magnify the complexity when you're, when you're working in a large environment. Um, for one, you know, again, there's, there's potentially been some history or some legacy around the environment. It may have, you know, grown through acquisition or uh, something like that in the past. And so you have these potentially disparate environments, um, you know, disconnected environments that have um, all sorts of proprietary or, or uh, you know, customized sync engines, keeping everything together. And for the most part, that's all worked really, really well over, you know, over time. Um, and, and it's worked well in an on-premises setting. Now well, you Really well or mostly well? Well, it's worked to the point where no one's had to fiddle with it, right? Let's say that. Right. Um, yeah. and, and, and potentially the person who actually implemented all of this stuff, maybe he's not even, or they are not even around anymore. Um, and then it comes to trying to unpack all of the stuff and put it back into a, uh, you know, more of a consolidated environment. Um, and that definitely becomes, becomes interesting. Um, the larger the organization, typically the more risk averse they are. Um, and you find that there are just many chefs in the kitchen, right? There's uh, something that, you know, for example, if we look at, um, uh, remediating active directory attributes, right? Making sure that, Active Directory objects have the correct attributes. They don't have invalid attributes or things like that, which is common in large organizations because they may have some provisioning systems and things that don't necessarily obey the rules when they when they uh, create um, user objects. Fixing those would, in a small environment, 
not be a big deal. You know, you run the ID fix tool. It will tell you uh, what's wrong. You can click fix and that's it. Uh, in a larger organization, there may be three or four or multiple teams responsible for AD objects or at least for signing off on making changes to those AD objects. Um, if you now add in the fact that you have multiple ADs and potentially multiple people running those ADs, it very, very quickly becomes very crowded. Um, and being able to make those decisions quickly and efficiently uh, is part of the challenge. How do you do that? How do you, how do you get those teams together? I mean, you find it difficult enough with a single project manager. And then also leads me to another question here is, obviously, 100,000 users is not small. So does Microsoft have the capacity? Do you, do you have to involve Microsoft? I'm sure you have to involve Microsoft at some level to say, okay, listen, well, we're going to dump 100,000 users and it's going to be a couple hundred terabytes of data. Are you ready for it? I mean, do they have to know beforehand? You know, back in the early days of Office 365, there were some upper sync limits on uh, on, on DerSync, back, as it was called back then. And at that point, you actually did have to um, log a ticket with the, with the service desk to get them to raise your sync limit because they wouldn't accept, um, you know, a synchronization with more objects. And I, I forget what that upper limit was, but it was something we, we ran into uh, quite a lot. Um, we don't really have that type of problem today. And, you know, to, to answer the question, I think one... Microsoft is typically always involved in, in, in customers uh, of this size and this nature, right? I think when, when you start w working with um, those types of sort of large global organizations, Microsoft are very motivated to have those people consume uh, Office 365 and, and, and cloud services. So there's typically always someone from the Microsoft team, from maybe from the Fast Track Center or, or, or the like, um, involved and in, in kind of ready to lend a hand to, to try and make the migration as, as smooth as possible. Um, in terms of actually trying to coordinate all of this, you know, that's where really good project management comes in um, and, and being able to try and get um, sort of a virtual team, if you will, set up. You know, and I find that um, a lot of the challenges that we've had in larger organizations come from the fact that the, there are so many silos. And, and you know, in a, a traditional environment, you have the SharePoint team and they work only on the SharePoint stuff and they really don't care what the exchange team's doing or, you know, what some of the other teams are doing. But now, when you're moving into an Office 365 world, some of the things that the other teams do are going to, you know, directly affect what you're doing. Um, and then there are things like, uh, you know, Delve and um, Teams and products like that, which there may not be an actual one-to-one -one mapping of, of, you know, resources to, to the actual product or the, you know, the technology. So being able to kind of step out of that siloed um, mentality or that siloed kind of uh, state and, and look more broadly across it and, and, and potentially look at, you know, virtual teams, those types of things, um, that really, really helps, right, to make sure that, you know, you have uh, a virtual team potentially dedicated to Office 365 made up of stakeholders from SharePoint team and, and, and potentially from Exchange and, and all the other parts of the organization that are, um, you know, look responsible for looking after infrastructure and supporting the stuff at the end of the day. Speaking of infrastructure, one of our biggest problems or one of the biggest problems that we've run into all, all, all the time, at least, is uh, the networking side. Um, you know, we do audits constantly where we see that customers' environments are not ready for consuming software as a service on such a scale. Um, I can only imagine in stuff this big that networking plays a huge part. Um, one of my questions is, do, do these clients, these massive clients, use ExpressRoute? Do they peer with Microsoft? Um, 
externally um, or do they just have these really really big pipes and how some of these guys networks even look I mean I'm sure proxy proxies are probably out of the question here um, but or are they well, you know, that's a, that's a, it's a, you know, a really, really good question. And, and, you know, typically we, um, we do a bunch of work from a network due diligence perspective to, to make sure that people are ready to consume uh, what they've bought, right? Because, uh, you know, if you, if you, if you think about it very often, um, the consultants come in once the product's been purchased, right? And so now the, 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 the clock's ticking on, on actually being able to start actually getting value out of what you've purchased. Um, we, we have a bunch of, you know, really smart networking guys too, that uh, they kind of get involved with this to, to help with that. But ultimately, um, I think it's a combination of both, right? Um, uh, Express Route and Office 365 hasn't really been a very successful thing in, in, in my experience. You know, we've had a few customers um, dip their toe in the water with that and, and, and very quickly learned that the, the limitations of it specifically as, as it relates to Office 365 um, kind of ends up meaning that they don't, they don't use it and they end up continuing to do that direct connectivity to, uh, via the um, by the internet, um, I think Express Route in the Azure space obviously is is definitely uh, more used more often, and there are certainly a lot more customers that that make use of that. And you know, um, one of the challenges, and I guess you guys would know this firsthand, right, is that certain parts of the world have less bandwidth. So mm. you know, when we when we have customers who potentially have a large a large presence here in North America, um, it is much easier for us to. To, to deal with the bandwidth constraints because they have larger pipes and we can do um, to a certain extent uh, a bunch of predictive analysis on, on what that impact is going to be on the, on the network. Right. But um, when you look at other regions, you know, if you think about, uh, you know, certainly Africa, um, certain parts of Asia, things like that, um, you know, in those places, power is not even a given. So bandwidth really is not something you can rely on at all. Uh, and so that becomes a little bit more challenging as well um, to try and try and deal with that. Well, we, we're dealing with a, a customer at the moment where, um, and uh, I'm going to be intentionally vague about this, but they have 150 users behind a four meg line. So four megabits going to the internet. Not That's not four megabytes, four megabits going to the internet. And they, they're asking us to architect, how do we move those mailboxes, albeit that they have 150 megabyte limits, pretty tiny mailboxes. They're now going to move to Office 365. And this is one of three remote sites that this customer has. And um, how do we how do we prevent things like OST resyncs? Bear in mind we've got an Office upgrade coming, and we know that when we upgrade Outlook, the profile changes. We move from thirteen to sixteen. We have a mandatory OST resync, and we're going to have a hundred folks worth of mail coming down this tiny little four meg pipe. So mm -hmm. at scale, I'm going to imagine that when you're doing cutovers at many thousands of people at a time that again physics and networking plays a massive role particularly when you need to coordinate an upgrade of office to an acceptable version and sometimes a version change as well as we may need to resynchronize all these people's mailboxes yeah look i mean you're, you're absolutely right i think the, the the challenge here too is that this is where some of the um the policy and, and the softer side of these migrations come into play, right, is is for one, having a really solid roadmap of what you're doing and when you're doing it. So what I mean by that is um, I think historically 
off, uh, when, when, as far as Office 365 is concerned, Exchange Online was was usually the first cab off the rank, right? You'd work through an enablement of some sort, get the identity stuff uh, sorted out, make sure that the tenant was enabled and, you know, all of that worked. And then you'd start moving mailboxes. But in these situations where, you know, bandwidth is so limited and constrained, it makes a lot more sense to really understand that roadmap and understand which features are going to be the most impactful to not only to the bandwidth, but make the most product, productive use to the user, right? And, and and you may find that, for example, doing the office upgrade first um, uh, before doing something else is, you know, moving the mailboxes is uh, is a way to go because in that way you're you're getting the client, the the actual new client down to the workstation before you're actually doing anything else. Um, but it, be, it becomes difficult because, of course, how can you predict the bandwidth um, utilization on, on certain of the services, right? We know for Exchange, for example, um, we can do some really good educated guesses on, on, you know, based on the user profile and how much messages they send and receive, that kind of thing, what their bandwidth impact is going to be. Um, but take a service, um, for example, like, I don't know, uh, let's say Planner or, or, or even Teams. Um, you know, there are some, some tools available for Microsoft, but do they really dig into to that? What about uh, you know, OneDrive for Business, right? It can become a little bit more difficult to get a very, very accurate um, prediction on what that network uh, utilization is going to look like. So really understanding the sequence of how you want to deploy this stuff um, can actually just be, you know, really help ease those pains. So Chris, with that, we tend to think of Office and then Exchange as the thin edge of the wedge. And I think we've seen Microsoft traditionally in the last two years struggle with consumption. So that is Microsoft has sold something and we haven't really seen a large scale adoption. How do you drive adoption beyond just exchange. How do we get data into OneDrive for Business, into SharePoint, using features, uh, maybe in a, in a disparate manner using Office 365 groups, but then also needing to understand then again at scale how information taxonomy and how it relates to SharePoint and file structures all play into what features do we use. And particularly since we have so many ways of collaborating, which particular feature of the three or four that I can think of off the top of my head do we use currently to store files? So, I mean, that's a that's a big problem, right? The whole uh, adoption piece is 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 enormous, um, and I think it comes down to there are a few things, and I think there are a few kind of barriers to to adoption. The first one I think is um, perception. And, and this is perception from a uh, an IT administrator or um, IT manager perspective, right? There is uh, a perception that Microsoft is really good in certain things, and Microsoft is not so good in other things, right? And if we if we use some examples, um, think about Office. Everyone knows Office; it's the de facto standard for productivity applications. So everyone will readily admit that Microsoft does that really, really well. At the, on the same side of the, you know, the same conversation, there'll be a lot of people who would say, well, Microsoft are not so hot at security. To me, that's a perception thing, right? Maybe historically, 10, 15 years ago, security wasn't Microsoft's core focus. Today, I think that what they're doing uh, with things like Intune and the investments that they've made in, you know, um, 
uh, in EOP, um, those types of things really, really add a lot of value to an organization. And so that, that's the first thing is, is that perception side. You know, what is Microsoft good at? What is Microsoft not good at? Right. So you have these organizations that say, well, we want to use best of breed for everything, uh, which often means they've purchased an Office 365 license, um, you know, let's say an E3 license, but they have a ton of on-premises um, products doing things that the E3 license will enable them to do in the cloud anyway. So there's that one piece of adoption and one side of adoption. The other part of adoption is cultural, right? I think that's the other barrier to entry is how do we change the culture of the way organizations work? You know, this has been a very, very, very fascinating thing for me. And I, I spent some time last year working with a, a customer who was on uh, on Google and they were they were looking to migrate. Uh, and they're a fairly large customer from, from Google to uh, Office 365 or G Suite to Office 365. And spending a week with them and looking at actually how people work was was just so fascinating to see the – and I think partly because it's a, you know, a younger – uh, workforce, so they they work in different ways, I guess, to the way you and I work, right? Was this a global and customer, or were they US based? No, they're they're a global customer, um, and they they just they, they work differently to the way to the way we work, right? So, being able to drive that adoption, the first part of that, I think, is being able to understand the um, the culture of the way people work. It it it's not a spec sheet discussion. You can't look at the, the spec sheets or look at the a comparison seat and say, well, today we store stuff in, um, you know, on file servers. We've now got Office 365 and now we're going to store stuff uh, on OneDrive. You know, I think to a certain extent that they can help drive decisions. But if users know file shares and they've worked on file shares forever, to take that, that next step to, you know, uh, to OneDrive or to, to Teams, there's a lot of handholding, I think, that has to come from from the organisation. So, you know, we're very big on on um, you know BAs and having BAs, um, business analysts in our projects to understand these things and to have those interviews with um, stakeholders in the organisation, so that we can actually try and map that out. Um, I think that end user piece is is forgotten so often, right? It's so often left out. Um, not only training and, and, and comms, you know, you get the, the, the email, Hey, office 365 is coming, right? People are, people are aware of it, but they don't necessarily understand what that means for them. Right. And, and back when I was working in Australia, um, I had a customer who, who did this in the best possible way I've ever seen. What they did was when they embarked on the project, um, they, they, they got some brand new machines, um, you know, they may have even have been Surface laptops or, or you know, Sur Surface Pros at the time. And they basically built them out to be, you know, it had everything. They had, you know, Skype for Business, they had uh, Exchange Online, they were using SharePoint, they had OneDrive, um, Windows 10 or Windows 8 at the time. All the, you know, the final end state, like the utopia of a, of a, of a desktop machine. And they left them in the in their like break areas, break rooms, cafeteria areas, things like that. And they didn't do anything with it except put a sign on it that said, you know, welcome to the future of your workstation. Use me. <laughs> right. And yeah, and and over time people started playing with that. And so they could then see the vision, they could see the end state. Which, which made it, re, you know, made them a lot more tolerant to the fact that, oh, I've just got an email saying my mail is going to be migrated, right? I can see that People working, don't like, yeah. I can see that working. Yeah. So those types of things really help with, with, with adoption involving the users in, in the whole process, I think, is really important. Um, the other thing, obviously, is, is you know, um, 
looking at its reporting, things like that to see, you know, you've deployed all these features now um, and, and maybe, you know, you've enabled all these things, um, making sure that people understand what to use features for. So, I mean, Nick, to your point before, if we look at um, productivity tools in, in Office 365, right, we have Yammer, we have groups, we have teams, uh, we potentially have distribution lists and, and um, you know, public folders, maybe, heavens, I hope not, but maybe they're there. Users are bombarded with new features all the time and they don't necessarily understand when to use what, what the purpose is, right? So from, a, from an organization perspective, it becomes so important now for governance teams and, and you know, end user champions to be in front of that, to understand what is coming, when is it coming, and how does it impact the way we work today? Because in today's world, the, the user experience is no longer static, right? Things are going to continue to change improve hopefully right that there's that constant improvement which is why you're in an evergreen service mm-hmm. um but at the same time you need to make sure that you're taking the users along on the journey you're not just leaving them behind so chris with that and since it's evergreen and features creep in and they land and it's a surprise we have a new feature and by the way we haven't written the control to turn it off yet but we'll land the new feature first how do you keep up with or how do the user adoption folks keep up when they've worked so hard to get those user champions out and get exco as well as middle management bought in to let's champion this new thing that we're doing but now something new creeps in and what does that do for user adoption and change management at scale yeah that's you know that's that's the a, a big challenge right and i think um I can see if I take a step back and I look at sort of Microsoft's perspective on this, I can understand why they're driving, you know, this constant innovation and why they're constantly pushing new things. They want to continue to be competitive. They want to continue to be the leader in the space. And, and you know, the more functionality you can provide, the easier it is for you to be seen that way, right? So I understand that. I also think that there's a classic case, though, of, of – um, I guess knowing your knowing your market, right, or at least knowing your customer or your client, because in smaller environments, if you have, you know, let's say you have a fifty user organization, you probably don't care too much that you know these new things are going to come out. Oh, Microsoft Forms is released. That's cool. You know, I'm, someone's going to find a use case for Microsoft Forms in that environment, and they're going to go crazy, and it's going to make their life better. Yeah. In larger organizations, um, that always on. Uh, you know, on by default type deployment methodology doesn't work so well because of all the things we've just mentioned, right? The adoption and, and all of that things. So mm-hmm. um, it becomes it becomes a, a real challenge. My typical um, recommendation for this is is have another tenant, have a test tenant, uh, have a way to be able to test things. Um, that don't impact your user. You know, obviously, you know, today we can we can have first release enabled in our tenancy just for certain users. Um, but it's important to have the right users be enabled for first release. So it, it's kind of a multifaceted approach, right? Firstly, you need to know what's happening, what's coming. And the way you do that is by looking at the roadmap and understanding uh, everything that's on the roadmap. You know, it's great to have that roadmap. The roadmap can get a little overwhelming sometimes because there's just so much change. Yes, you know, I, on it, yes. I I present on this topic, you know, quite often, and 
usually before I'm, you know, when I'm getting ready to go and present at a conference or even just to customers, um, I go on the roadmap and I go and look at how many changes have been made in the last month, how many have been made in the last year. The number is astounding. I mean, we're talking hundreds, right? And so being able to get ahead of that, that's a cultural shift now, right? So now all of a sudden your job, you know, if you're, if you're involved in, uh, change management and potentially, a, you know, a user champion, things like that. Uh, part of your job probably should be looking at the roadmap every day and understanding how some of these things are going to impact you. Um, once you understand that, then it's a matter of, okay, well, let's see, when is it going to hit? We don't always know, right? It's going to be rolling out. Rolling out might hit you today. It might, might hit you next week. But having um, potentially a, a test tenant that is on – the entire tenant is on full release is a good way to kind of – you know, um, come across that. Uh, and then having individual kind of people within your production tenant on full release is really good too, because when it, when it, when it actually hits your tenant, those people know first. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's a cultural shift and it's something that, um, it's a, it's something that is required. You know, you really need to change the way uh, you approach these things. Now you can no longer be reactive about, um, the changes that are coming. You can no longer be reactive about communicating things to users. If you, if you want to be on top of it, you need to get ahead of it. And you say that you do these talks regularly. Where do you, where do you speak? Um, so from time to time, I, you know, obviously I'm presenting to customers uh, and clients. We, we talk to them about these types of things, uh, you know, fairly often. Um, this year, uh, I had the sort of great experience of, of attending the um, Office 365 Engage conference uh, in the Netherlands. I think that was in, in sort of uh, mid-June. Um, it's a slightly kind of smaller uh, or newer conference, should we say that? Um, it's just a fantastic, uh, fantastic conference. So anyone who's kind of listened to this from Europe, um, you know, make sure next year when that rolls around that you, you look at that. Um, and then later on this year in, uh, in, uh, in October, so next month, um, I'll be uh, presenting at uh, IT Dev Connections in San Francisco, um, talking again very much about uh, these types of things, right? Sort of the planning aspect of um, of Office 365 and the planning aspect of, of, of your, uh, your deployment. So the things that are not necessarily workload specific, you know, there are always these little things that you need to consider from a workload perspective too, but really these, the change management and, and, and the planning and, uh, the operational side of these things, um, you know, because they're so different uh, are really important. Uh, when it comes to migrations, uh, you mentioned Google earlier and, uh, companies migrating from Google. How much do you see of that? How much do you see of people moving from migra- from competing products um, as opposed to from on-premises to cloud? You know, this this year um, or in the last 12 months, there's definitely been a, a sort of an uptake of um, – the, especially the Google side, you know, in the, in the past, we've seen a, a bunch of Google users or, or typically smaller companies, you know, they would, they would kind of dip their toes in the Google thing, or they'd, maybe they'd been on, um, on Gmail for, for business for a while. Um, and now, uh, Office 365 has become more compelling for them because, you know, uh, just from a commercial perspective, a cost perspective, or what have you. But this year we've, I've definitely noticed the, um, an uptake in, in larger organizations, you know, you know, thousands of user type organizations that um, have potentially been with Google since the beginning, now starting to look at, at Office 365. And of course, these guys are, you know, a lot more uh, ingrained in the Google ecosystem, uh, which, you know, can be a challenge in itself. Okay. So bear in mind that Google is a multi-fangled beast. There's... Um 
There's file services, there's collaboration, and again, exchange or mail is the thin edge of the wedge. That in itself is a massive cultural adoption challenge and user adoption challenge when you're going from something that's purely browser-based or if we rewind the clock to the, the early Stone Age, people using notes or group and notes, a very rich application environment, not such a hot mail environment, but well, at least not from a client point of view. Then you're moving to Exchange Online. That has got to be a huge challenge. Yeah, it, it really is. Um, and it, it really does change the way people work, right? And, and you know, some would say uh, it's, less, it's a less efficient approach. You know, if you think about the, the, the browser-based um, everything in a browser type type environment right. there are those who would say that it's, it's it's less efficient i you know i don't believe that i think microsoft does a great job of catering to um those folks who just want to use the browser right so if you know you're a linux user or a mac user and you just want to use the browser all the time um you know you have options for that uh so it changes the way you work definitely and that's why it's so important one, to understand um, the, the, the cultural habits of, of how people work and where people work from, right? That, that's the other thing. I mean, if you're going to be doing most of your work I- in a coffee shop, then you want to make sure that before adopting Office 365, you're, you're understanding where people are connecting in from so that you can, you know, if, you, if you're going to be securing that in some way, if you want to allow multi-factor authentication or some sort of conditional access, at least you understand where people are coming from. Um, but then also that user communication and training, right? There's, you can no longer assume that someone worked on Office five years ago, so therefore they now know how to use Office. That assumption I don't think is, is accurate anymore. You know, I think with the constant involvement of the, the Office suite um, and, you know, the, the integration between Outlook and Skype for Business, for example, um, or or, uh, you know, SharePoint and, and Word and Excel, those things, that integration, there has to be constant training. Even if your organization uses uh, Office today and they're moving to Office 365 and they may be going from 2010 to 2016 versions of, of, of Office, there's a training piece that's there, right? And, and you really don't want to underestimate that. Okay. Okay. That makes a world of sense. So with that... You are going to be joining us in the podcast in, in the future. However, you have a blog. You've got an online presence. How do people find you and what is it that you would like to plug? <laughs> so I think the, the, the best way uh, to, to find me is, is via my blog. So seedgoosen.com. Uh, is my blog. Um, I have links on there to, uh, you know, my social media presences uh, on Twitter and, and LinkedIn, things like that. Um, you know, like we mentioned earlier, I'll be at uh, IT Dev Connections in in October. So, you know, if you're if you're around, uh, come and say hi. Let's you know, let's have a chat um, about anything you want. Really, I, you know, I'm I'm best at technology talks, but hey, you want to talk about coffee? Let's do that. Um, and then, obviously, uh, next week is Ignite, so uh, yes. we'll be. Um, both uh, Nick and myself will be uh, at Ignite, so really looking forward to that and potentially uh, doing some uh, recording in person, both of us in the same room. Can you imagine that? Yeah, yeah, and we're going to be finding a bunch of unsuspecting victims, both Microsoft folks, MVPs, and customers, effectively anyone who will be willing to stand still long enough and give us an an interesting show. So, Chris, what is your Twitter handle? Uh, At Chris Goosen. And with that, you can find me, Nicholas, 
on the Twitter at Nicholas Blank, as well as Facebook and LinkedIn. And I blog at blankmanblog.com. And you can find me, Warren, uh, on Twitter at WarrenDT. Um, you can also find me on Facebook. And you can find my blog at www.waza.co.za. Uh, you can also find our show on Facebook, The Cloud Architects, uh, and our website, thearchitects.cloud. And on Twitter, at the Cloud Arc, because Architects was taken. <laughs> Chris, we are so appreciative of your time. We know it's very early in the morning where you are. It's uh, late-ish in the afternoon on our side. So thank you so much for your time. No, thank you, guys. I really, uh, really enjoyed being on the show. Bye-bye. <laughs>